Welcome to Say What Needs Saying. Tonight, we're discussing climate change. This is a topic that has been one of the top results on our polls on Facebook a couple times now, and most recently, it was the top result. And so many of you have expressed interest in discussing various aspects of climate change from choosing between different energy sources, nuclear versus other renewables versus more fossil fuel heavy sources, uh, to Facebook post flags, to the Green New Deal and government's role in adapting to or mitigating climate change. And so since this conversation could go in a number of different directions, I'd like to start right away by just turning the floor over to our listeners uh, and let them say what needs saying first. So if anyone wants to jump in, we can really start wherever, but I know some of you have expressed that you want to discuss particular aspects of climate change. Um, so Mary, uh, you can go ahead and jump in first. Yeah, um, whenever this topic comes up, um, I always think of a book that we read in middle school, The Big Wave by um, Pearl S. Buck. And everybody in that, in that time had read that book. It was something we all had in common, but it was the first time that it hit me as a person that I was, I, I could do nothing in the face of the power of the earth and the sun and the moon and anything out there in skies. If a tsunami, because these people, for those of you who haven't read the book, um, they, they were Japanese and fishermen and they lived on an island and they knew that every once in a while a tsunami would strike. And one did. And um, the... Um, um, I don't know how you say his name. It's J-I-Y-A. Um, it, it, near the end of the book, it says he learns to live with his parents and brothers dead and to find happiness and fun in spite of tragedy. And I thought a lot of times when my own life would have some tragedy, I would think back to that book. And so part of me wonders this generation didn't have that book and this generation didn't bear talk very much about tragedy. It was participation trophies and it was everybody's a winner. And this is an example of why that's not always the best route to go. We want some of that, but we also have to learn to deal with tragedy and that there is tragedy. And it reminds me of that kindergarten teacher who was so mad, I realized none of the kindergartners knew hamburgers came from cows. And she, um, she, um, she said, I will never teach them that they would be they would be trauma traumatized. Um, and I think they wouldn't choose this book because they'd feel the children were traumatized. And so this is, I guess, the, the helicopter generation, they call it. And I don't, I, I don't know how well equipped they are to deal with that reality that we are pretty powerless against the earth. One way that this manifests, I think, is that you see this distinction between mitigation and adaptation. And a lot of with, with I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush, but one trend that I see amongst younger individuals is that we should be mitigating climate change and we should have increased government uh, intervention or action to do that. Um, so I wanted to turn it over to, uh, to Jim, who uh, wanted to discuss the Green New Deal. So this is one of the main initiatives by the, the more progressive left as far as combating climate change goes. And there have been people that have spoken highly about it and also people that have pointed out 
flaws in it. And so I know you wanted to talk about the, the flaws in the Green New Deal and, and how that plays into this conversation in climate change. And so uh, I just wanted to turn the floor over to you and, and let you say what you need saying about that. Uh, well, thank you. Um, I'm calling from the um, what I would call the communist state of California. This is become a real uh, religion, especially out here. And it's now unfortunately being spread nationwide. And it's, um, it's just a total um, misuse of science and misuse of the um, ability to function in a, what I'd say, a, a common sense way. I mean, we have many reliable sources of energy that um, have existed for centuries in this country. And now suddenly we demonize ones that are dirty and, um, and uh, the definition is very vague in terms of how they're defined. And we've defined uh, uh, something like natural gas as, as dirty uh, that is actually a very clean source of energy. We've demonized nuclear power. That may be one of the cleanest of all. And uh, so there's no, um, there's no really good science base for this. It's, um, it's a real effort to um, just gain control, of government control over society, making up something that maybe some people would believe are plausible, but they're not. Um, and the um, extent to which this is overtaking uh, our society is, is really uh, sad because we're um, right now, we're on the closest we've been since 1945 to the Third World War. And here we are trying to cripple the United States, that is the Biden and uh, Kerry wing of the Democratic Party, which is in control of the US government right now, they're not able to understand a, an approach that is gonna make America energy independent and allow us to help the rest of the world. They don't seem to, they don't seem to get that. And they don't seem to get um, what Mary was talking about, too. I mean, you have to have a giant ego to think that the weather is controlled by human beings. I mean, in my view, this has been controlled by God for the, since the beginning of time. And if you have a, a problem, you come up with a solution that is the most feasible. One example that I like to cite is the way... Holland has uh, dealt with rising um, sea levels. They, they build dikes and they've survived all right. So if the, if the oceans rise somewhat, then you can, uh, you can deal with it in that way by say building uh, dikes or doing what they've done um, in New Orleans. You don't have to turn society upside down and change every aspect that exists. And this, um, 
So this is the uh, the kind of insanity which a lot of it started in California because we have such a high concentration of radical academics and also radical environmentalists and radical legislators. They are now making, I think they're on the forefront of leading the effort to uh, remove um, natural gas. And they're, they're, we now have one nuclear power plant left, which is supposed to be phased out in three years. This is a tremendous source of clean energy. And just a couple months ago, I participated in a Zoom with a couple of very distinguished MIT professors um, who were proposing that the Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant also be modified so that it could be used as a desalinization plant to help the water crisis in California. And this is a tremendous possibility because Diablo Canyon is right on the ocean. And yet this kind of positive thinking gets nowhere in California. And hopefully this proposal uh, will be part of the effort to save Diablo Canyon, but I don't know. In any case, I don't wanna uh, take too much more time, but I believe that there, there has to be a big effort to stop, stop the extremism here or we're going to um, face very bad consequences. Yeah, I appreciate you jumping in and sharing your experience from California. Obviously, it's very different from Michigan or Ohio, where I grew up. I, I saw a couple people, both uh, Nick and Dave, looked like they wanted to respond. Um, just really quick before I turned it over to, I think Nick I saw first, and then, and then Dave after. I think one of the, so we're again circling around this mitigation versus adaptation, right? You mentioned with rising sea levels and adapting to that instead of necessarily mitigating and, and making it so that won't happen. Um, and so again, there's that divide. And the other thing that you touched on that I want to point out just for those listening to the, to the audio of this who aren't here now is there's this concept both of climate change denial and climate change alarmism. And I think most of this, most of the discussion and, and disagreement on, on these issues isn't necessarily the existence of changes in, in the climate and, or even to that effect, the fact that humans have some role that they play in climate change, but more so what the impact of it is going to be and then how we should handle that impact. Those are both things that we've touched on previously, but Nick, I wanna turn it over to you to, uh, to, to jump in. Thank you. Thanks, Zach. Yeah, um, I also reside in the communist state of California and born and raised here. And uh, so I can concur a lot with uh, what the previous guest was talking about in terms of the radical uh, legislation that takes place out here. And uh, I found the problem really a lot of times with these Democrat proposals or the Democrats that are in charge is they feel good on the surface, but there's really no mechanics behind it, how they're going to make this happen. For example, you know, they, they've been taking away all of our sources of creating energy and, and they don't offer an alternative uh, to create that energy. So that's a big problem. Then they talk about, they want to electrify the entire uh, automobile sector here in California, yet there's no infrastructure to support that. They can't even keep the lights on during the summer. Uh, we, have to, we have what are called brownouts and sometimes blackouts because there's just not enough power 
in place to handle the, the demand, right? So for air conditioning and things like that. So to say that we're gonna be able to electrify every car in the state by 2030, or, or at least stop selling gasoline powered cars by 2030 is, is far-fetched and it's, it's unattainable. I wanted to kind of shift gears a little bit, you know, to talking about, you know, is, is climate change man-made? All right, it's a great question. And is there something that we can do to mitigate it? All right, now this topic has been one of discussions since I was a little kid. I was born in the 70s. And I recall, you know, actually looking back on some of the, the newsprint from that era, they were actually talking about global freezing. They were talking about a big freeze, another, um, you know, mini ice age that was going to take place. And then it shifted to global warming. And they keep saying that, you know, the seas are rising, they're, they're going to rise. So in 20 years, New York is going to be underwater. Well, 20 years came and went, New York is not underwater. Uh, Glacier National Park, same sort of thing. They said that in 20 years, by the year 2020, these glaciers will be gone. Well, they had to take that sign down because the glaciers are not gone. So um, I, I think they're overstating the issue if there is one, uh, which I tend to not to not necessarily disagree with, but I also don't totally agree with it. Um, in that we're having this major impact on on the climate. Sure, is pollution bad? Absolutely. We should, we should mitigate pollution at, at, in, in all of its forms. Um, but is it really due to the, the activities of the average person or even maybe some of these corporations who are spewing out a lot of stuff? Um, and which leads me to uh, talking about um, um, geoengineering. And, and this is something that they've been doing for quite some time. Uh, it's uh, now just only coming to light that they've been doing it, but weather modification, things like that, you know, making it rain. And I think I, I, this is just a theory that you know, they've been modifying the weather and messing with things to create you know, bigger storms and bigger hurricanes and more tornadoes so that they can justify their statement that this is man-made climate change and it's affecting everything. All right, so again, this is just a theory. But it would make sense because the government does that a lot. They, they use what's called the Hegelian dialectic, which is they create the problem, they manage the reaction, and then they offer the solution. And, and it seems oftentimes all of these solutions involve us giving away more of our rights and, and you know, look at what happened after 9-11 and look at you know, what's happening with COVID. And so the same sort of thing with these, um, with these new digital IDs that they're rolling out. Uh, I've seen I've seen um, some of the demo versions of these, like the one in Canada. Not only does it include, you know, your name, your driver's license, and all your information, who you voted for, where you live, what's your medical history, but it also includes what is your carbon footprint, right? So, how many carbon units have you used this month, right? So you could see at a, at a point in the future, perhaps when there's digital currency in place. Um, they can just shut down your account or they can say, hey, you can't use this digital currency to buy any more gasoline because you've reached your carbon limit or you can't buy any more red meat because you've reached your carbon limit. And, and I think it's a part of a, a, a bigger strategy to, to um, control. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's a strategy of wanting to control human beings and wanting to uh, essentially just take over every aspect of our lives and using this as an excuse. Um, again, uh, you know, you look back historically, if you look back many, many thousands of years, um, the planet was much warmer at one point. And, uh, and 
uh, it was there was much more CO2 and CO2 is good actually for the planet. It helps plants grow and plants produce oxygen, which is what humans need. So so there's this balance that we have in in nature. And um, you know if we if we if we uh, begin messing with that or or uh, I don't know to what degree you know we're going to have these issues. And um, just to kind of wrap up on the subject there. Um, you know, we've not taken into consideration that any of this could also be caused by what are called uh, solar maunder maximum and minimum. And these are these are cycles that the sun goes through over long periods of time in which um, the temperature on the earth rises and then it lowers and we get like mini ice ages or we get hotter periods of time. And so this could just be that this could be exactly what we're experiencing, which is just a cycle of the sun. And there's essentially nothing that we can do about it. And speaking back to our first guest about that wave that comes in, nature's going to do what it's going to do, whether or not we, we like to be arrogant enough to think that we have an impact on it. I don't think we do. And I think that those who are trying to manage it or um, engineer the weather, I think they're having a negative impact. You know, Bill Gates wants to spray the, the, the skies with all this, this stuff to reflect the sun. What's that going to do? So anyway, that's about. Um, what uh, all I'd like to really talk about on on that aspect of it. So I see the uh, the conversation back to you. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate you sharing. Um, we had a comment before I turn it over to Dave. We had a comment that touched on something that you were talking about um, that actually came in before you were talking. But it says um, you can control the weather. That is why departments like space sciences and AOSS exist. Carbon capture has impacts that can do this, curbing pollution by getting off planet for mass manufacturing, controlling energy at power plants, nuclear, et cetera. And so, yeah, this is another kind of on the flip side of, of what you were talking about, Nick, with the potential for negative impact of controlling the weather. There, is, there are positive impacts as well and the potential for positive impacts. And so that is another area for debate, right? And this is something that there are examples throughout history of both cases of whether it's the private sector, if you're talking about someone like Musk go, trying to go off planet, um, if, if that's what that comment was referencing, or if it's talking about the government, you know, there are instances throughout history where selfish aims and, and maybe corrupt aims have led to the development of some of these technologies. And then there are also more generous or, or positive aims that have, yeah, or benign aims that have as well. Um, and so it's the question of whether or not the geoengineering is being used for malevolent or, or corrupt or, or positive means. Um, I think both are possible and both are probably happening simultaneously to some extent. Um, but with that, I want to turn it over to Dave. He's been very patient holding his hand for a little while. So thanks for waiting, Dave, but, but feel free to jump in. Okay, so the assumption here by everyone has been that there is a problem to solve, and I'm going to make the case that there is not a problem to solve, and that we're in the midst of the largest fraud in human history. Um, almost nobody knows this, but NASA and NOAA have not published raw temperature data since about the year 2000. And the further you go into the um, irregularities about what they're doing to manipulate the data that they um, that they do publish to the public, the more disturbing it is. So first of all, they present temperatures as though they were raw data with no notification otherwise. And if I give you a temperature graph, you would expect that I'm showing you what is coming out of the thermometers. 
That is not what NASA and NOAA are doing. They manipulate the temperature data by declaring up to 50% of our temperature measurement um, stations invalid and then replacing that data with fake data from their CO2 model. So um, the first thing I posted here up above is a video, which we're not obviously going to include in this chat here, but that's the URL. And it's called Corruption of the U.S. Temperature Record. And that's a guy named Tony Heller who puts um, really in, in just a few minutes an incredible um, expose of what's going on here. And Tony Heller, why is he qualified to say anything? Well, in the mid-2000s, he worked for the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder, Colorado. And so he saw what was going on. He saw the internals of all of this stuff. And he was aware of the politics of the whole situation. And he's been spending the last 15 years really exposing what he learned there. So um, that's a pretty, you know, he, he, he has, in my opinion, more credentials than anybody else to uh, talk about uh, what's going on. And he, unlike the scientists who work there, is not operating under political pressure. He's not gonna be fired. So people really don't realize, uh, when, when they look at the skewedness of the information that's coming out about so-called climate change, um, they don't understand that if you're working in a field like climate, sci climate science that has no practical application in private industry, there's really only two places where you can have a job. And the one place where you could have a job is in the government. And the other place is that you work in academia on a project that's funded by the government. So you're very government dependent, okay? So people ask the question, well, why aren't these scientists, why don't we have a balance? If, if, if this is all true, this kind of stuff that Tony Heller is saying, if this is all true, then why is it that there aren't scientists in the government speaking out against this? And the reason is that if you speak out against this, and this has been demonstrated many, many times over and over again, if you speak out against this, you will be fired. And not only will you be fired, you'll be blacklisted. You will never work in your field again. You might as well put on your apron and go work at Starbucks, okay? So now I also posted an image here, which you can't see unless you click on it. And this image, uh, if you do click on it, it's called the Average Monthly temperature at all U.S. historical climatology network stations. Um, and what it shows is the difference between the raw temperature data and the reported temperature data. And the raw data, which is the blue line, which uh, is fairly erratic, but in the long-term trend is not particularly um, disturbing. It's, it's fairly static and it kind of centers around a, a trend line that is kind of straight. It shows that we're not really in any kind of difficulty at all. And what we really have, what's being presented to the public is the red line. So what the NASA does is, and, and NOAA do, is they take all the data before about the year 2010 and they dramatically reduce it. They claim that there was erroneous data in all of this and that people were making procedural errors and that we're going to adjust for those procedural errors. So they've massively reduced the temperatures of um, the um, previous century and they have massively increased the temperatures of the last couple, you know, last decade. I don't understand why nobody is talking about this. They're not presenting raw data. This is not what the thermometers show. Furthermore, you, you could say, okay, well, this is all a giant conspiracy theory. Well, first of all, Tony Heller gets his data straight off of the NASA and NOAA website. He knows enough about how to get into these things. 
he can pull the data out and any, the, the source code that he uses to generate these graphs is public domain. It's been public domain for years and years and nobody has ever found a problem with it. So now I'm going to, um, I just posted a, a second graph here called CO2 adjustment. You click on that one, you'll see this radical hockey stick is what the, is the term that they use it. This hockey stick of CO2 um, in the atmosphere. And, and keep in mind that CO2 is a trace element. This is really represents a very small amount of actual increase in the actual amount of the gas. And if you look at this and then you look at the previous one, you'll see that the, the adjustments that they're making to the temperature data that they present to the public correspond pretty much precisely with their CO2 in the atmosphere analysis, okay? So this is called confirmation bias, which is that they have this theory that CO2 in the atmosphere must be driving the temperature up. And therefore, um, we have to fix the data so that it matches our model. The connection between these two graphs is too disturbingly direct to, um, to be uh, any kind of coincidence. It's just not. But it's not just third-party analysis of what's going on here. So I'm going to post you another I'm going to post you a link to a New York Times article, and this is a guy named James Hansen, who today is one of the big climate alarmists um, at NASA. And back in uh, 1989, he was reporting that there doesn't appear to be any significant temperature change going on since 1895. So this is the same guy in 1989, but suddenly he's changed his tune. So he was doing a reverse analysis. He was looking back at the data. <laughs> this is from NASA itself. And he was uh, looking at back at the data and saying, I don't see any trends suggesting that we have any kind of significant warming going on. Now this same guy years later is, is, is one of the uh, leading um, alarmists telling us that we're all going to, um, uh, you know, we're all gonna die from climate change. And I'm gonna just do one final thing here. It's not just um, this guy, it's a lot of people. 49, there was a letter written a few years back by 49 former NASA scientists and astronauts, and they were writing an objection to NASA saying, you are engaged in climate alarmism. We want you to stop. You're destroying the credibility of the agency. And we want you to stop doing this. Now, why are they former NASA scientists? Well, the reason is that, of course, if you're still at NASA and you have this opinion that the data is being uh, fraudulent, you know, the data being presented is fraudulent, you won't be at NASA for very long. So everybody who wants to complain about what's going on about this has to wait until he's retired or otherwise out of the field because nobody is going to... Um, and then nobody in these agencies will dare to speak out against this. So this is, it's just absurd that, you know, that people don't realize that, well, if there's a government agenda, if there's a political agenda sitting on top of this whole thing, that obviously you're not going to get pushed back from inside the government. So I want to touch on two points really quick. One is to build upon one thing that you brought up. Um, and then the other is to sort of play devil's advocate and pose a, a question to you all. Um, so the first thing that I'd like to bring up is you, you mentioned a lot about data integrity, really, and, and manipulation of data and, and transparency in general and, and availability of these things. Part of the issue with environmental research in general, well, research in general to a certain extent, but environmental research specifically in certain contexts, is that a lot of the data sets that are used to generate the research that, that guides regulations or that guides 
public discourse around these issues is very hard to get access to unless you have either certain credentials or work for a particular agency. Um, and I know that uh, Jim has some specific experiences with this, and we talked about it on Academia Uncensored as well. Um, and maybe we can get him to talk a little bit about this if we want to jump into it after this. Um, but I, the other thing that I wanted to bring up is the sort of devil's advocate point that I've heard numerous times from people that are more left-leaning or the more pro-environmental regulations and things like that, is that even if hypothetically we are wrong, if hypothetically there is no climate change happening or there's no human impact on climate change or et cetera, why not do what we can to adapt to it or mitigate it anyway to make a better world? And it it is a very unnuanced view of this, but it's a common one. And it's something that I hear a lot is that worst case scenario, we clean up the world, we clean up the oceans, we clean up the air, and we were wrong, but we've created a better world for it. And, and it's something that you hear a lot. So I'd like to turn it over to Mary, because I know her hand was up uh, before, and she may have wanted to build on, on what Dave was saying. But I want to leave you all with that counterpoint, because it is one that I've heard quite a bit. Um, and I think that it would benefit the, the conversation to kind of engage with some of these alternative perspectives. Um, so Mary, go ahead. The floor is yours. One of the things somebody had made a comment about Michael Crichton's um, flip comment, but there is something to that um, in terms of, and I had written it on the side, um, you, when every scientist is agreeing with something, it means the ones who disagree are silenced. And so if you try to write anything of what we've said on Facebook, a fact checker will indicate that you're wrong. That's probably been the biggest irritant to me uh, uh, of anything. I like what you said, Zach, because I've been thinking the Republican Party should, or Libertarian should, it's a loser to to fight climate change, but it's a winner to improve the environment. So if the conversation is simply moved into we want and some and some projects started, but then we give ourselves a whole lot more credibility um, in addition to not setting ourselves up as a, as a target. So that's one thing. Um, we talked about how it's so difficult right now with fact checkers giving us false information about facts. And it's it, for two years, we've had all these, um, I'll call them untruths um, from both sides coming at us. So when that's the situation, um, I was a I um, was a professor at OSU and uh, my ex is still. One of the things I met in, I was in Norway for a month. Um, Norway is a very ecologically correct country. Any hotel you go to, they have the infrastructure set up. So you go to a hotel and there'll be 14 charging stations. Um, they're farm-raised salmon, farm-raised fish, you know, is really got terrible toxins in it, but they have a way of doing it in the rivers where the fish would be swimming. And so they have all that. Well, we were staying in a bed and breakfast. And it turned out the woman who owned it was a Russian who had worked on that 
big project at the South Pole where they were taking, she's a geologist, core samples um, from the earth because they can now in those core samples, they can tell um, the ice traps it in bubbles. They can tell the temperature. They can tell the amount of carbon dioxide. We know now, and I'm going to miss, I'm going to kill the pronunciation, but the Cretace Cretaceous period um, was the last very warm period. During that time, the sea level was 170 meters above what it is now. One of the things that they found when they were taking these core samples and they had all these projects going around on Antarctica was that there were tropical forests in Antarctica and you and they found them in the ocean. So again, it's 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 this the earth, <laughs> the earth has so and I think the native the Indians they want to I've been told Native Americans means a sociologist in the 70s. <laughs> They like to be called the Indians and then the tribal name. And so sometimes people get angry because they say Indians, but that's what they want. And I think a lot of their culture respected and understood that the earth was far more powerful. The mother earth was far more powerful. And so that, that came in. I'll also add that um, these, this, um, this expedition, there was another one that came out after that led by Greenpeace and Greenpeace wouldn't allow anyone to have guns or any guns. And seven people were eaten by grizzly bears. And then they finally hired some people with guns. But I thought that was one, uh, just it's an aside story of, but these are the scientists who are looking. And, you know, at a university, if, if you're going to have questions asked, if you're not going to give the right woke responses, you're not going to be hired. Anyway, I'm going to leave that. I'll go. To, I'll go to that. Uh, um, you're not going to get funding for projects. You won't get tenure. They, what I'm basically wanted to say was, if you interviewed and you said the right things they wanted to hear, you still have three, four, five years of a career and research that you want to do, and um, and you can't. And so they've even they have a list of 85 um, scientists who disagree and who are open about it but as as you said you you, you really can't do that until you you're um, gone um, two other things I want to mention one how depressing this is for the millennial generation um, my daughter in her first year went to Harvard was going to be a climate scientist and on the first day of class the professor told them it was too late for the planet that there was nothing we could do to save it. He would tell us something. She quit that major and she was depressed enough to eventually, that wasn't the only reason she transferred out of Norway, but that was one. And so I think this, they're living with this depression. They really feel that their children are going to be living in a world that is hot and flooded. And, and that's something that they think about and talk about a lot. And then the last thing I wanted to say, I was down south um, recently um, on a trip to Florida and going along there, I saw how much um, energy alternatives there were. We can't have those where we live. In Cleveland, Cleveland has no sun, maybe five days of sun if you know Cleveland. 
Cleveland only gets winds when it's in a storm, and then they're about 40 to 50 miles an hour. So despite what the South might be doing or Norway, let me tell you, Cleveland can't do that. I don't, unless, unless that weather's changed. On the way down there, I saw farms of the um, wind sources. I saw solar panel farms. They're ugly. And that's a problem. It's been a problem when they've been put in the water off, off of coastlines. That's not the biggest issue. That's really kind of minor, but because it was my gut reaction when I first saw it, um, I, I and I know there are some problems, especially with birds um, and and the wind devices. So, um, I wanted to touch on a couple points that you made really quick, and then I'll turn it to. I think I saw Nick wanted to respond, and then then Dave. Um, so the first that I wanted to touch on, it kind of touches on something that you were bringing up, Mary, that some others have touched on as well. Um, and there was also a comment. And so I wanted to read the comment first and then get into this briefly. Um, the comment says, that's the evolution of research. Also, if you say in your conclusions that there needs more research to be conclusive, the next research will be in that next step to get to the truth. And that is true, right? Especially if the intentions of the scientists are, are pure and, and scientific in nature. Um, the, the problem that we've seen historically, many of you have touched on this idea of a consensus. And the one that is tossed around most frequently, I think, is that 97% of scientists or of climate scientists, depending on who's saying it, agree that well, what they agree on is is the is the problem. Whether depending on who you ask, either they all agree that climate science, climate change is happening, they all agree that humans have an impact, or some people will even say that they all agree that the impact that it will have warrants some level of intervention. This this stat has been kind of twisted over the years. It really began with a misinterpretation of who we were talking about, right? First off, it, it was not talking about all scientists broadly. It was very focused on climate scientists or those that listed it as one of their main credentials or main areas of expertise. The other problem and that this comment touched on that I wanted to, to bring into this conversation is that a lot of papers do say that. A lot of papers do claim that more research needs to be done. They don't necessarily espouse an opinion on climate change regulations or whether or not the impact will be negative enough to warrant things. It is more so a neutral climate science or climate change based paper. But in the creation of this 97% consensus, a lot of those neutral articles were included in this. And a lot of those articles that did not take an explicit stance on these issues were also included. And that was where the initial break between 97% of scientists agree that climate change is happening versus 97% of scientists agree that we need to do something about it is in including some of those studies that do just that and say that there needs to be more research done and don't necessarily take a stance themselves. And so you bring up a valuable point, Mary, that when we talk about scientific consensus like this, it needs to be taken with a grain of salt. It needs to be taken with the fact that you know, there there are dissenting voices. And while they may not always be in the majority, depending on what topic we're talking about, whether it's climate change or other people will cite COVID or other scientific issues where, you know, there's been a proclaimed consensus on, on one thing or another. 
it does need to be taken with a grain of salt and, and taken in the context of who is proclaiming the consensus exists. Um, the, the other couple of things that I wanted to touch on briefly before turning it over to Nick, and I, I want to be careful not to steer us too far off track because I know he wanted to respond to what Mary was saying. Um, but is that anxiety and depression that you brought up, Mary, that it is an evolving issue that more and more people are experiencing anxiety, depression, fatigue, and claiming that the cause is worries over climate change, worries over the world ending, over climate change alarmism. And this is another impact of, we. someone had mentioned earlier that it decreases the credibility of movements to mitigate or adapt to climate change because it blows it out of proportion and maybe fear mongers and, and makes it worse than, than it actually is. It also has individual impacts. It has impacts on individuals that many people are deciding not to have children now, for example, because they believe that they will grow up in a world that's destined to, to end within their lifetime. Um, many people are experiencing these mental illnesses, mental, mental health issues with this reasoning in mind. And so again, whether or not it is, whether or not the impacts are as bad as the worst predictions, there is an impact of, of claiming those worst predictions. And, and that needs to be taken into consideration, you know, even to the extent that quality of life does need to be valued along with life. Um, Mary, you you mentioned that it was a small point that they were ugly, the, the wind farms and solar panels, but, but honestly, quality of life does still matter. And with any issue, if you look at the extremes of intervention, you could make any problem hypothetically. You could decrease speed limits as a good example, right? If everyone drove five miles per hour, you would substantially decrease presumably, the number of car fatalities and, and accidents and, and damages caused to property and so on and so forth. But you would severely handicap people's quality of life. And so there is a trade-off there with every policy and climate change is no exception. Um, and so if enough people think it's ugly or, or other impacts on their quality of life, that is something to be taken into consideration too. Um, so hopefully I haven't steered us too off track. Uh, Nick, if you want to jump in, go ahead. Yeah, thanks, Zach. Um, great stuff there, by the way, and a lot of it is is certainly um, certainly important to to discuss and bring up. Um, I did take some notes, so I'm going to kind of work from where we were and then work forward. Um, something that 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 I think both Mary and and Dave brought up is that they they censor and and defund these anybody that is isn't towing the party line isn't isn't um, you know, anybody who's a critic of the narrative, the prevailing narrative, right? So that's why you don't see a lot of these scientists in opposition of, of the, you know, the 97% of scientists who say that global warming is human caused, right? And that then we need to do something about it. So, I mean, you saw that most recently, you know, as Mary just said, where you're talking about COVID online, you know, they were censoring doctors and scientists. I mean, there, there, there are thousands and thousands of doctors who have been threatened with losing their license to practice medicine over just making statements. They're trying to pass a law here in the state of California to do just that. Anybody who speaks out against the COVID narrative can lose their license uh, to practice medicine. And so who's to say that that, that that same sort of thing isn't going on in the scientific and academic community here in the U.S.? Because primarily, as, as I believe Dave pointed out, that it's funded by the government, right? So if you don't want to lose your funding, you don't speak out against it. And so 
we're only going to hear those voices. We're only going to hear that narrative. And, and does the data bear it out? Does the data really show it? Does even your own personal experience show it, right? If you can look back on, on your life and say, well, is the weather really that different? Is it really more extreme than it was? Or is it more like these cycles that we're talking about? And I'll have to say no. Uh, you know, I honestly, you know, here in California, um, I haven't noticed a really marked difference in the environment and, and the seas haven't raised as they said they were going to do. Um, I mean, heck, these people are buying beachfront houses, the same people who are these climate alarmists. So anyway, uh, you, you, you also brought up, you know, the, the depression of people uh, over these issues. And this is a part of a broader plan of, uh, uh, that was uh, laid out in something called Agenda 21, which was put out by the United Nations. Uh, back in the 90s, and they updated it to now to, to Agenda 2030. And, and when you read this document, you see that there is an effort to for both um, population control and population reduction. And so essentially that the latter of, of that is genocide. They, they want to, and they need to, in their eyes, to save the planet, they need to get rid of people. And they're doing this in a variety of ways, by poisoning the food supply, by poisoning the water, by giving us dangerous chemicals in the form of pharmaceuticals, and just the things that they use on the plants, like the herbicides and, and insecticides and so forth, things like uh, Roundup, you know, uh, uh, gly glyphosate, right? So there, there is really a, an agenda to, to affect the population. And one of those ways, is ways they use kind of the social engineering aspect, is to get people to not want to have kids. because and why would you want to bring a child into such an awful world? So we are being psychologically manipulated by these very same people, and they are and they are silencing the critics. They, you know, that's this is what this whole battle with Twitter is about recently, is is giving people an open platform and a forum to discuss and debate these topics, kind of like what we're doing here. And and it should be that way. And you have to wonder if they're trying so hard to censor these people and to silence these critics. What are they? What are they really worried about here, right? If these people are just spouting nonsense uh, that doesn't have really any impact, that, that there's no truth to it, why bother even censoring them? I mean, it, it, people can see right through it. They can see that it's a falsehood. You know, you you, you have to look at it from a you know a, a broader perspective, and and kind of uh, and how it fits into the overall agenda, uh, like Agenda 21 or Agenda 2030. One thing I would like to say is yes, um, and just in kind of closing here on this part of the, the discussion, is uh, it, you know is it bad like you said, Zach? To in, in the end, like the critics say, well, why not do it? We would have a cleaner environment. Okay, um, sure, I, I agree with that. Who doesn't want to breathe clean air? Who doesn't want to drink clean water? I know I recall back here in the 70s and 80s here in the Los Angeles area where I'm at, the smog was much much worse than it is now. And due to you know mitigation efforts such as um, you know smog checks on cars and 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 making cars you know produce less um, uh, pollution, you know we've seen an an improvement in in the air and it did it did come at somewhat of an economic cost. Everybody had to bear that burden a little bit more, and they keep raising the fees a little bit more every year, and so it does have an, an economic impact. But there are ways to do it without throwing the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. And one of those technologies that I've become very interested in, in well, for some time now is hydrogen, hydrogen technology. And a friend of mine just bought a hydrogen powered car. 
Um, they're building the infrastructure for it. The exhaust is like water and, and oxygen. So it's, it's a wonderful technology and they actually can apply it now. They're looking to apply it to airlines and where you can have an airline that, that or an airliner uh, and, and, uh, that flies utilizing strictly hydrogen, um, no pollution, and it can go three times as far as any of the currently kerosene fueled airlines. So, so there, there, there are ways to achieve the goal without having such a major economic and psychological impact on the population. And, uh, and for people who think that the earth is overpopulated, I would like to point out that you can take all seven point whatever billion people now, almost approaching eight, you could fit, if they were in groups of four, like four person families, you could fit in, in three bedroom homes uh, for every single one of them. And that would all fit in an area the size of Texas. Okay, so, so, so we're not overpopulated. We're just misutilizing and misallocating our resources. We could, we could be more efficient. Uh, perhaps this is where something like artificial intelligence can come in to help um, make our distribution and, and uh, logistics better in terms of getting food and products and things and places to where they need to go. So there are a lot of things that we can do without, again, having to harm the average everyday person. And, and I would like to see us move in that direction. So thanks. I'll turn it over to Dave uh, shortly. I just wanna jump on something that, that Nick was mentioning briefly. Um, and I'll preface this by saying that this is my personal view. Um, I typically, I try to stay more neutral or play devil's advocate, uh, especially since uh, I no longer have a co-host that can kind of push back on me a little bit. The one thing that I want to focus on personally is this overpopulation myth, just because it it is a myth. And, and Nick, you brought up a great point about population density and the fact that we could fit more people in less area if we needed to. Not only that, though, this is, I mean, historically, th this concept of overpopulation has been used by leftist authoritarian regimes to justify things like sex-specific abortions or forced sterilizations and really nasty, really horrible policies and decisions to justify based on the premise that if we don't do this, we're all going to die. If we don't do this, we're all going to suffer and we, we need to do this in order to prevent that. And it's a really dangerous, slippery slope. Um, and and I, I see that that logical progression happening from climate change is occurring, climate change is dangerous, climate change is exacerbated by overpopulation, leading to all the things we've talked about. Therefore, I will not have children or therefore I will be depressed because the world will end. And, and you know, it. it it's, it's a slippery slope. The slippery slope fallacy is, is a logical fallacy at times, but I do see the historical precedent for this being a problem. And this overpopulation argument, I, I do think that one needs to be thoroughly de debunked. So with that, I'll try and shift back to more neutral discussion moderator uh, and give it over to Dave. Um, so Dave, go ahead and jump in. Hi, well, there's so much to cover. I don't know how I can fit it in. First of all, I greatly applaud uh, most of what Nick has said uh, but I have to dispute a couple of things. First of all, the hydrogen solution is a false solution. It, it only works if you look at the consumption side of it. But the question is, how do you produce this hydrogen? There is no free atomic hydrogen on Earth. All of it has been burned already. It's already combined inside some other atom, or it's mostly in the form of H2O. It's in water. So if you're going to use free hydrogen, you're going to then combine it 
with oxygen to recreate water again as your exhaust, you have to separate out the hydrogen, you have to unburn it. So how would you do this? Well, you'd have an electrolysis plant. Well, but it takes more energy to electrolyze hydrogen out of a water molecule than you will get putting, uh, then burning it again when you burn it um, in, in the um, place where you want to use it, like in your car. So it actually, the whole hydrogen solution requires a whole nother power source to, you know, it's like the electric cars. Oh, they don't emit any emissions at all. Oh, wait, what happens when you plug it into the charging station? Well, the charging station is powered by a coal-fired nuclear, I mean, you know, a coal-fired plant or a nuclear plant or something like that. So it's this farcical thing where you just look at one little part of it and you don't see the production side of it. Um, the other thing I need to dispute is this idea that the weather is getting more uh, extreme. It is not. If you look at the graphs, which I don't have time to publish all of it here, it would take hours to go through it. The weather is getting milder. We have historically fewer hurricanes, fewer uh, tornadoes. Every time there's a fire, they go to make a big deal about this fire. So especially in California, in California, they have billions of tons of deadwood sitting on the forest floor due to decades of insane environmental policy that has removed the logging companies that says you cannot remove this deadwood from the forest floor. So we have decades of piled up fuel that are fueling these incredible fires that we're seeing. So yes, some things are more extreme, but it's not because we have a fraction of a degree increase in the temperature. If you have a fire somewhere, there has to be fuel. Where is all this fuel coming from? Our daily temperature variations are getting smaller. So the difference between the daily highs and daily lows are getting smaller. So the weather is getting milder. And all of this this uh, fictitious belief that people have is driven by selective reporting. So let me give you an example. And Nick was talking about, well, what about your daily experience in your life? So I'm in Minnesota right now. Today, of all days, we're approaching a record high for this date in terms of the high temperature in this date. The high, the, the high temperature record for this date is 74, and we're probably at that or near that right now, okay? The problem is that the rest of April, our high temperatures have been 10 to 20 degrees below normal day after day after day. And some days our high temperatures have been lower than the average low for that date, okay? But what will you see if you turn on the news tonight? They'll say, we had a, a record high temperature today, all time record for this date, okay? And never will they talk about the fact that the whole rest of the month has been just depressingly cold. I mean, it's like winter will never end here. It's just ridiculous. On the 97% consensus business, I don't know, it would take a long time to debunk this, but this was a colossal lie of the administration, of the Obama administration. There has never been a 97% um, consensus uh, on, among client, sci climate scientists. There's never been anything even close to that. It's a giant, colossal lie. But going back now to your original question, you're saying, well, the environments, environmentalists are saying that we're going to improve the planet. Why don't we just improve the planet for the sake of improving the planet? And then you'll see, all you have to do is look at their hypocrisy and looking at the reality of the insane things that they're proposing to do. So first of all, we've already spent decades cleaning up our fossil fuel sources at their insistence. And that was a good thing. Uh, Nick was talking about how the air is cleaner in the Los Angeles area. And it's like, I have no doubt there is. Beijing, uh, you know, if you go there now, you have to wear a mask during the day. It's not because of the COVID. It's because of the insane pollution that they have going on there. But generally speaking, let's look at their solutions for here. The environmentalists will block the mere replacement of a tiny pipeline while enthusiastically blanketing millions of acres of farmland 
and pristine wilderness with windmills and solar panels. The average person has never driven to a place like northeastern Kansas, I have, where you go, the entire visible landscape for mile after mile after mile is completely covered in windmills. And what people don't see when they're looking at a windmill is this enormous concrete structure underneath it, many, many times the size of the windmill. And in terms of mass, probably hundreds of times the mass of the windmill itself. They have no idea. And that the production of this concrete base for the windmill released an enormous amount of CO2 into the atmosphere. And I'll leave it to you to see what happens when you produce concrete. The average person has no idea how many hundreds of millions of acres of solar panels and windmills it would take to replace our current energy supply. It's just an unimaginable the devastation. So we're talking about pristine desert environments and they're saying, oh, let's go out in the desert and put solar panels out there. So these are some of the most pristine places on earth, the desert ecosystems that the environmentalists would be up in arms to protect. And yet they are now talking about, we're gonna cover the whole Arizona desert with solar panels and, and, and destroy the ecosystem underneath these solar panels that no longer will receive that sunlight. It's utterly insane. It's too crazy to even contemplate. Um, so their solution, and then they don't, uh, and, you know, even they will admit in, in some of their videos and stuff that replacing our entire energy supply with electric infrastructure is insanely unrealistic. We are not even close to having such a technology and we probably never will have unless we develop hydrogen fusion power, okay? But we may be decades, decades away from fusion power. They don't talk about uh, hundreds of thousands of square miles of open pit mining required to extract the minerals to produce all these panels and batteries, plus the thousands of square miles smothered in battery storage facilities. And then there's the unfathomable disposal problem for all these non-recyclable materials, which nobody is discussing. You know, anyone in the petroleum industry, which today cannot get approval to replace its minuscule pipelines, who propose such a plan to, to do this much environmental devastation for their industry, would be rightly branded a lunatic and sent off to the asylum. So the idea that there's something some kind of improvement going on here. All of their proposals for everything are completely insane. I mean, insane. And, and it is amazing to me how you know, I'll talk to a group of people here and it's like how, the, the, how much, even among a group of skeptics like this, have been um, influenced by this selective reporting and this lack of reporting on the downsides of all this stuff to the point where they don't realize how utterly insane their proposals are. I think I saw Jim with his hand up, um, and so I'll turn it over to you in just a second. I just want to read one of the comments that we have uh, for those listening to the podcast um, that can't read it now. This comment says, who is to say hydrogen fuel isn't funded by interest groups? Also, does manufacturing or labor and GDP impact better? For, is it better for one person? What has been considered for what direction is best? Because I think nuclear has a bad rap. Um, this is a topic that I think also comes up a lot is these funding biases and interest group uh, funded research and things like that. And I think it's a it's a valuable point to bring up because the reality is that both legitimate and illegitimate research and both competent and incompetent scientists can be funded by a variety of sources. The, the source of the funding itself should be treated, I think, again, and this is my personal take, should be treated separately from the integrity of the research that's generated from that funding. Because at the end of the day, you need funding to perform research. And if you would like to perform research that goes against the perceived consensus, that goes against the, the proclaimed uh, viewpoints of various interest groups or, or scientists, you have to seek funding elsewhere. Uh, and sometimes that is 
quote unquote, big oil, or sometimes that is groups that have interests in various energy sources and whatever. But at the end of the day, if the research that comes from that funding is legitimate, is has integrity and is done correctly, it could still bring us to a closer approximation of the truth. It, it could not. And it could be that research funded by big green energy companies brings us closer to the truth. And it so I think that while those biases obviously exist and need to be taken into consideration, it's also important to realize that the the funding doesn't necessarily dictate the result. Something to be taken into consideration that that good research can be done regardless of the funding research, as can bad research. With that, uh, Jim, I want to turn it over to you. And, and you have some specific experience with this, with funding concerns as well. Um, but I wanted to turn it to, over to you. I know your hand was up, so feel free to jump in. All right. Um, I'd like to go back to something that Nick said. I, I find it pretty amazing that with eight participants in this uh, Zoom, that two of us are from Los Angeles. Um, I've been involved with um, fighting the extremism that has gone along with the efforts to control air pollution in California, especially in Southern California. Just to give an example, a lot of the claims that are used to um, justify regulations in air pollution are based upon uh, the notion that actually air pollution kills. And this is um, in particular been a like a 30 year controversy that's been going on in the United States. And actually uh, there is no real solid evidence that air pollution kills unless you're dealing with extreme extreme levels. Um, and there are instances going back earlier in the 20th century where you can make a case, but on just everyday exposures to air pollution, it's not true. And I've been engaged now, especially uh, since the Biden administration started to oppose their efforts now to tighten air pollution standards on, on two um, critical um, aspects of air pollution, that is fine particulate matter and ozone. And these efforts are ongoing, especially right now. I just participated in a, a panel that was um, held on February 25th. And there were um, scientists that are advising EPA and they listened to about 18 critics of the proposed tightening. And these people uh, were so unprofessional, they did not answer a single question. They basically just pretended that we were talking to a wall. This is how bad the scientific dialogue has gotten. And you can't, you can't engage with people that disagree with you. This is marching on. Also on February 25th, there was a fire near Chernobyl. Now, Chernobyl has six nuclear power plants. If those nuclear power plants blew up, that would be the greatest public health environmental disaster of all time. And yet you have here in the United States an effort of a small, relatively small group of scientists, but they're in, in power because they've been selected uh, because of their views that are espousing tightening the um, regulations in the United States at a time when we're on the verge of World War III. And as Dave said, uh, you go to China and you have to wear a gas mask 
because of the high pollution levels. So we have a complete mismatch of things going on, and it's it's really uh, necessary to um, to fight this um, anti-science uh, agenda as as hard as we can, because uh, it's gonna it's gonna hurt America because we've already seen the the damage that's been done because of the fact that we're not energy independent and the Europe is relying a lot on Russian um, uh, natural gas and fuel. It's this is has to be um, dealt with, and so I, I'd be pleased to engage with uh, with Nick, especially, and and uh, and pursue this. And I think um, I'm really impressed that Zach has been able to uh, do what he's done as a as a doctoral student. This is uh, pretty amazing, um, and uh, we need. We need to amplify his efforts too. I appreciate it. And I, I'm, I'm happy that we were able to organize these kinds of conversations around these topics. I know that several listeners had expressed that discussing climate change was not the easiest thing. And obviously it's, it's a sensitive subject with lots of disagreement, but also lots of animosity directed at those who, with whom people disagree with. And so, so yeah, I, I appreciate everyone joining. Um, and it is, it's ironic that two of you are pretty much neighbors. And so I'm sure that you both can connect after this and, and hopefully continue these conversations in California. Uh, I want to turn it over to Dave, uh, who's had his hand up for a bit now. So Dave, go ahead. Well, I have what might be a closing thought here, although if someone wants to go after me, please um, feel free to do so. I think that our only hope is that the COVID deception has destroyed the public trust in both our public officials and in our media. So we live in an ocean of lies and most people aren't willing to face that. They, you know, they suck their thumbs on the idea that these nightly news programs they watch are filled with facts. And it's this. there has to be a sea change. So it's like uh, the analogy I make is when you look at one of these psychological draw, uh, drawings and you see one image when you first look at it, and then it, you look at it for a while, and then it changes somehow in your mind, and then it it's becomes a different image. Uh, the same image represents a different thing, you know, like these two faces looking at each other, but really it's a lamp, um, and the faces are just the backdrop. That kind of sea change has to happen, and people saw it happening very publicly with COVID. So there was Fauci lying about the masks, you know, very comfortably, him and the who lying in the first videos or say, uh, not lying, but talking very comfortably in the first videos, saying they were emphatically that they are are, are, um, are are worthless in public settings. And then later actually admitting that they were lying for the sake of making masks available to the, uh, to the health providers uh, so that they would get them first. Uh, we had all this business where the people of color are, were actually made exempt from, Oregon's, Oregon, from an Oregon County's mandatory mask order. And then the BLM marches, which were all um, exempt in 2020 from these mask rules, but as, as though um, the COVID virus was sensitive to your politics. And then we had a, an endless litany of these um, lockdown mandating public officials flagrantly violating their own orders. So it would take, a, it would take an hour to just go through the list that I have here of the the liars um, who, who are our public officials going out in public and violating their own mask orders extremely flagrantly. And we have this on video. It's not disputable. OK, so then there's another hope also 
is, is that we will go deeper than that and the public will realize the intense corruption of our political class and its media. We have this Congress, for example, where the retention rate of these people is something like 98%. Well, you don't stay retained um, in a political, in a, in a real democratic type of voting environment at that kind of a rate unless you're engaging in voter fraud. So we have the political class on both parties now are actively attacking anybody who suggests that there has ever been voter fraud under any circumstances. And it's like, why are they attacking anybody who, who wants to bring up this subject? Uh, well, we have a lot of data coming out in the next few weeks regarding what happened in 2020. And I don't know how much distribution this will get, but the you know conservatives are trying very hard to publicize this and we'll see where they get. And this is indisputable data that they're going to present. It's just actual data. You'll have to see it. There's a thing called 2000 Mules from uh, Dinesh D'Souza that's going to come out the first week of May. The public is gradually waking up. The mainstream legacy media is gradually dying, but unfortunately too slowly. And there has to be this sea change in public understanding that we do not live in the honest, um, well-meaning fantasy land that we believe that we do. So I think I'd like to, well, I'll, I, I'll turn it over to Nick. I, I see he's got his hand up. Um, but I think I'd like to give everyone a chance to bring up their closing thoughts as well um, and have one last chance to say what needs saying. So before I turn it over to Nick, uh, I want to bring up one last not quite devil's advocate, but one alternative perspective that I've heard tossed around multiple times, it, that being that climate change is a global problem, and so therefore it should have global solutions, right? That institutions like the Paris Climate Accords or, or other international institutions or agreements or carbon taxes or, or regulations should be adopted because then it will encourage a worldwide effort to combat climate change and to combat the these these impacts and these issues uh these effects right and so that is something it, it sparked a lot of controversy when president trump pulled out of the paris climate accords and it led to well more controversy with on more but on the right when uh president biden spoke about rejoining it um and so these these topics get thrown around a lot. And so I wanted to pose one last thing just in case anyone has any thoughts on it. But from here out, uh, feel free to, if you have anything left to say, if there's any topics that you think we missed or anything that you think needs a little bit more fleshing out before we close. Um, and then after everyone has said everything that they need to say, we'll call this episode a close. Nick, I want to turn it over to you. Uh, feel free to, whether it's responding to that prompt or fleshing out a topic that we talked about or anything else, um, one last chance to say what needs saying, and then we'll go to Dave, who's hands up, and then anyone else after that. So Nick, go ahead. Great. Thank you, Zach. Yeah. Um, yeah with regard to the, the last topic you just brought up uh, about the, the, the climate accords and this being a global issue, um, certainly, that it, it is a global issue. You know, we're all we're all affected by the overall environment with regard to pollution. Um, but I think one of the reasons why President Trump chose to pull out was not because we didn't want to comply or do our part in making sure that we uh, don't pollute as much as we can. I mean, California has got to be one of the cleanest places on the earth, and yet we're still we're still got this self-flagellation going on. You know, that that we're we're somehow the worst polluters that there are. And we have to do more. But I think one of the reasons that he pulled out was that you've got some of our partner 
uh, countries like China as well as India who are massively polluting. I mean, they're they're building you know, new coal-powered power plants, coal-fired power plants in China, like it's going out of style. The same sort of thing is happening in India, and so. I think they need to be, get their affairs in order first before they start requiring more of us because we've done we've done a hell of a job here in the United States with regard to reducing our pollution. Okay, not to say um, you know its effect on climate. I know we're getting a little bit off topic there. You know, as far as the you know global effort, um, this brings up the thought about globalism and and about losing a national sovereignty. And we saw that happen occur early on here with COVID recently where the World Health Organization dictated a health policy essentially to the United States. And you saw on places like Facebook and Twitter um, where they would pop up a little thing that says, this doesn't agree with the official statement from the World Health Organization. For more information, visit you know who.org or whatever. And uh, so this is really concerning that, that nations are now no longer able to govern themselves and, and they're, they want to be governed or they're going to be governed by these unelected bureaucrats uh, over in, in Europe and uh, part of the EU. And of course, we have a seat at the table. But, but these aren't elected officials. These aren't people who are answerable to their constituents, people who voted for them or who didn't vote for them either way. So that is a really big problem. And, and one of the, the, the latest in, that, in regard to that is uh, the World Health Organization now is making that official with uh, a new accord that they want all nations to sign on to. So that way, when another pandemic happens, uh, uh, artificial or not, they're going to lord their authority over every country that is, is a signatory to this accord. And that is a really big issue. We're losing, like I said, national sovereignty. And uh, that particular topic actually is going to be the topic of discussion on my podcast tomorrow, Sunday. And uh, our guest will be discussing that. So if you'd like to check that out, uh, folks, I do have a podcast. It's called the Free America Podcast. And you can find it at freeamericapodcast.com, freeamericapodcast.com. You can also find it on any major podcast outlet or, you know, like Spotify or Apple podcasts, you name it, uh, just type in free America podcast or type in my name actually in Apple. I think you have to do it by Nick Yaya, which is N-I-C-K-Y-A-Y-A, all one word and check out the podcast. I do cover a lot. I've been covering recently a lot of COVID related stuff. I've been diving deep into it um, because I find that, that all of these things stem from um, the, this final push, this globalist push, and they're using the fear around COVID to get people to cede their rights to give up their personal liberties, much the same way we did after 9-11 here, out of fear, um, because we want the government to protect us. And so I'm seeing the same sort of pattern occurring here uh, with COVID. And again, I know we're um, slipping a little bit off topic there, but I think it is it is somewhat relevant to the the, the discussion of um, global climate change and you know what are we really being told the truth or like many of these other things have have proven to be are we are we not being told the truth are we being told some some kind of contrived narrative by these uh, these entities whether they are government or you know the fourth estate of the media legacy media um, it's um, it is really concerning to see these things happening and I think climate change may also be a part of that agenda. So um, that's pretty much it for me today, folks. I, I gotta, I, I have to step out. My, uh, I'm on my phone here. I'm not at at my office or my desk. So 
Uh, I'm losing battery power. And so I'm going to have to go for now. But I do want to thank you, Zach, for inviting me on the show to, to discuss this. This is, this is fantastic. I really love this platform. And I hope to be able to come back soon. And I, and I wanted to also say that I enjoyed listening to and speaking with Mary, Dave, and Jim, and of course, all the other people who participated in the discussion, putting notes in the, uh, you know, in the comments section. So thanks again for having me. And uh, I'll see you again soon. Yeah, thanks so much for joining, Nick. Uh, we'll have to have you on again, and you're always welcome to join future episodes if there's a topic that piques your interest. Uh, I wanted to read a comment that we got before uh, turning it back over to Dave, um, just so that the people in the comments can also have a chance to say what needs saying. So this, uh, this commenter says that he also thinks of this as political warfare to go for electric and lead the world because China is taking off on cold fusion and the US is just yelling at each other. And to me, to, to this commenter, that conflict seems more fabricated than to slow us down than anything as nuclear fuel in the East is seen as global power. Um, I, I think there is a lot of fear around nuclear and there is a lot of conflict that it generates, you know, and, and so I wouldn't be surprised if some of this is politically motivated. Um, we've talked about various interest groups throughout the course of this conversation. And I think that there is something to be said about leading in technological developments, whether for climate purposes or otherwise, um, particularly when we're talking about competing with a country like China and development of technologies like cold fusion. Um, so there is something to be said there. Um, and, and there is a valid uh, justification for getting involved in some of this research if it is going to make us more competitive on the world stage and in, in terms of competing with China. But um, I want to turn it over to Dave so he can have one last chance to say what he needs saying. And then afterwards, if anyone else wants to jump in before we close, you're uh, free to as well. So Dave, go ahead. Well, I'm hoping that whoever was talking about cold fusion really meant nuclear fusion, which actually is a possible um, solution to our um, energy problems because there is no cold fusion. Uh, if you know anything about physics, you know that fusion is inherently very hot. But, uh, and then uh, I want to applaud everything that uh, Nick said about the globalist uh, efforts to undermine our national sovereignty. Uh, there is something very disturbing afoot. And let me just say to that end that I don't believe that Joe Biden is on our side. <laughs> you make of that of whatever you will. Um, the Paris Climate Accord is so utterly preposterous. And the idea that anybody would support it suggests to me that Nobody knows what it's about. Basically that China and India will be building hundreds of fossil fuel plants as fast as they can for the next decade. And we're gonna shut down the few that we have left and this is going to save the planet. I mean, you have to be literally out of your mind. And then um, again, it comes down to the preposterousness of their solution. Um, we're gonna cover millions of square miles with windmills and solar panels. Uh, and more to the point, we're not gonna discuss that this is where we're heading, that that's what would be required the non-recyclability of the materials used to build all of this uh, infrastructure, covering tens of millions of square miles of the world's surface to fully replace our fossil fuel infrastructure. And then the ecological disaster of producing and disposing the unfathomable number of batteries that are required to support this electrical system. I mean, you really have to be, have to, you need to have more than a few screws loose to buy any of these arguments and this tells me that either the population is, um, you know, uh, hopelessly 
lost in terms of their being unable to process rational information or that they're so hoodwinked by the propaganda surrounding this thing that, that they just can't think straight and they actually have no idea what it is that they are advocating. Thanks. Mary has her hand up, so I want to give Mary one last chance to say what needs saying as well. So Mary, the floor is yours. I've been struck throughout this um, whole discussion on climate change, how similar so many of the issues, the attempts to turn things around, and the response from those who have latched on to this, this theory are related to it. I've spent my whole life in schools um, trying to get academic achievement improved and working in poverty schools. And I realize how similar all those things are for both issues. Um, Dave always told me I was naive. Well, I remember once a little 90 year old woman of color said, Mary, they don't want our kids to read. They were mad because your scores were so high. Um, I have been naive. And what woke me was being censored on Facebook and censored on NPR for get, wanting to give a civil opinion. Um, but it was not the narrative opinion. And from both of those. And so I never I took freedom of speech for granted. I wouldn't have said that, you know, you go on, oh, they want this, oh, they want that. I kept thinking back to 1960 and the World's Fair, because throughout the World's Fair, it the focus seemed to be on um, overpopulation and the disastrous results. And I came away, I was a little kid from that fair with the overpopulation. My naivete was broken also by Dinesh D'Souza's movie, Hillary's America, which everyone should watch. Now I'll finish with this. This is a comment I would have taken as conspiracy theory and tossed out the window. I'm not gonna mention who said this comment because I don't want to get myself in trouble, but it shows you how some of the people who have a whole lot more power than we do think about our world. And this was the quote. And I got this quote from someone who has had jobs that lead her to be able to get this kind of information. Too many useless mouths that for now need to be placated with drugs and video games. And um, that was about us, that comment, all of us um, who are out there. So I want to end with that. I appreciate you sharing, Mary. Um, one last check just to see if anyone wants to jump in. Yeah, Jim, um, go ahead and have you can have uh, one last chance to say what needs saying as well. Um, feel free to jump in. The floor is yours. All right. Well, look, I would just want to thank you for um, organizing this and uh, to emphasize that uh, we we need to uh, do everything we can, especially this year. Uh, to stop the, the Biden agenda. And I agree completely with Dave that Biden is not on the side of America. Uh, he may think he is, but he's not. And uh, so um, that's where the primaries and the general election are so important this year. And I want you, Zach, to continue all your efforts. And this is uh, a great opportunity. 
thank you all again. Um, if you haven't already, please subscribe, follow, like, and all of that to us on Facebook, social media, like Instagram, Twitter, um, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, everything helps. And thank you all for joining. Have a good night. There's just a deliberate effort to block the kind of findings that I've published, and I'm not the only one that's being blocked. This type of authoritarian or tyrannical behavior can't just go away without people noticing. They don't like what you're saying, and therefore they're going to silence you. Peer review has really broken down. If there is no spirit of liberty, as Learned Hand once said, behind the law, the parchment is never going to survive. If they express their views, they may find themselves not getting a degree or unwelcome in their classes. The reason he took his own life was because of this cancel culture campaign. Where parents are saying, no, my kid's not putting this on their face. Through that, they've been led to, well, listen, why are you guys teaching critical theory? The science upon which these regulations are based is wrong. If we lose free speech, we are done for. Academia Uncensored, the Say What Needs Saying podcast.